I'm Michael Heyman, and you're listening to Changemakers. If you don't try, you will never know. These are the words of the co-founder of Bremont Watches, Nick English, my guest today. Now, Nick's is a story which is far from ordinary. It included a childhood where a normal weekend was borrowing his father's 1940s aircraft and taking a trip to Europe. But a tragic plane crash would cost his father his life and leave Nick badly injured. Yet, in the passing of time, from tragedy would come triumph. And the first step of that would lead Nick and his brother Giles to conclude that life is just too short to not follow your passion. That passion was to see the creation of Bremont, the aviation theme watch brand, and to lead to a tip for life. Be half full. They are the best folk to be around. Nick, welcome to Changemakers. Let's talk about that quote. That if you don't try, you will never know. That that seems to be that you're one of life's tries, that you actually do make the effort to give it a go. Well, welcome, uh, Michael. Thank you for having me on your show. Yes, it's very much like that, isn't it? You have something that changes in your life and something has a big impact and suddenly it does change your focus and you and you really do feel that life is not around for a long, long time. You have one life and you really have to go out and make the most of it. And I think my brother and I both have the same kind of philosophy. Mm. I mean, when I read about your story and, and the conversations that we've had, obviously you are in the business of time with watches but I think time as a theme in your own life seems to be so important and I was reading an interview where you you borrowed the words of Louis Armstrong so little time and so much to do being the most challenging aspect of running your business do do you think that relationship with time and the time we have as people on the planet is a really big part of your story I do I do. I do. I think it it stemmed from, you know, if you go back a couple of decades when we lost our father, I mean, he was 49 years old. And for us, that was very, very young. And he seemed to have crammed uh, an awful lot in, in those 49 years. And I think Giles and I still wake up every day thinking, you know, what can we cram in today? What what do we have to get through that's, um, you know, you don't leave it till tomorrow if you can do it today because you just don't know, do you? And I think our attitudes did, did change a huge amount. And it's very much over the last, how should I say, you know, number of handful of years, it's really dictated how our business strategy has gone as well. It's had a huge impact on us. I mean, your, your father obviously was a huge influence on the life of of you and Giles's brothers, but also on, I guess, a lot of the inspirations for the business as a former RAF pilot, as an aeronautical engineer. Tell us a little bit about what it was like growing up with such a commanding figure as a parent. Yeah, do you know, and it's funny, isn't it? Because you um, have a father like that and you think, oh my gosh, we, you know, I hope I'm sort of half the guy he was with my children. But no, uh, he was an incredibly creative, very thoughtful, very intelligent guy. Went to Cambridge, did aeronautical engineering there, did his PhD there as well. But he has this incredible, unique combination of being very cerebral, but also incredibly able with his hands. And because of that, his idea of downtime, his idea of decompression was very much about going into the workshop, building things. You know, that included restoring cars, motorbikes, aircraft we still fly, clocks were one of the things. And sort of a form of cheap childcare was our mother dumping us in the workshop with him. And we grew to to love it and spend a huge amount of time there. And uh, Was it pocket watches you were working on? I, I, I read that somewhere. No, we, we did tinker with those. But they're obviously for, for, for kids like us, that's actually quite tricky. You have to have a bit of the, the right equipment. And what was easier, actually, was going along to a car boot cell. And our mother would find an old carriage clock or a grandmother father clock and see if we can make it work again and um, because that's actually how my father paid for a lot of his way through university and buy an old clock 
see if you can make it work. And obviously, a plot that works was worth a, 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 a deal more than uh, the one that didn't. So that's how it started, the sort of love of Cox, but also this conversation about how important time was for the UK on British shores, you know, this incredible history of British watchmaking, which was so incredibly important for us as a family. Well, well, we'll come on to what you did about that in a moment. But but the first thing I want to do is to sort of like build on this incredible visual image of some sort of teenagers when they get to sort of 18 and onwards might might dream about sort of um, taking out their, their dad's car for a spin. You took your dad's plane to Europe for a spin and a 1940s plane at that. Tell us a little bit about that experience and and what was the impression it created upon you about the sort of life that you were living? But you know, you don't really think about it at the time. Our our parents were, just had a huge amount of, well, they just gave us, afforded us a huge amount of responsibility, which I don't think I wonder that you'd be allowed to nowadays, or certainly I'd be able to give my children. I really hope I can, but it's it's difficult. So we we grew up flying. Aviation was very much in our blood. We, our father was an air show pilot as well, and my brother and I ended up doing quite a lot of display flying as well. You know, we used to have that. We we learned to fly in this little nineteen forties aeroplane, very sweet little thing. And we would say to our fathers that we're our parents were we're off to to Europe for three or four weeks. So I'd be seventeen, eighteen. Giles would be a couple of years younger than me. And this is pre-GP. As you do. As you do. But, and and it would be hilarious. You'd have a map, a compass, and a watch. And that was your form of navigation. So you'd head off from near Cambridge or Norfolk and would head off down to, to the south coast. And then you had the whole problem about trying to cross the channel. You had to try and pick the right ferry going from Dover to Calais to try and follow. Otherwise, you'd end up in Ostend. And then you'd head off to, to France. And the only stipulation our parents would give us was actually make sure you call your mother once a week. And so you'd find some French phone box or wherever you went, Spanish phone box or Lithuanian phone box. And we'd just head off around there. And it was, we're, you know, an incredibly lucky childhood in that respect. And um, actually quite lucky we're still here. <laughs> I mean, we can't complete this aspect of the story without covering the very tragic and sad death of your father in 1995 in an airplane crash with you where you broke 30 plus bones in in your body and 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 he died i read that the conclusion that you drew was how short life is and how you just needed to get on and and do something do you think that that crash was really the moment that Bremont was born in terms of actually the catalyst to go and do something different? It was. It's funny enough, pre, pre-accident. pre So it happened during a, an air show practice. I was with my father. I hadn't flown with him for, for a long time. And we took off from an airfield just north of London, Northfield, an old uh, wartime airfield. And uh, something went wrong with the aircraft that day. My brother was waiting to take off in the other airplane. And, and I ended up uh, you know, we lost our father, which was, uh, you know, horrific. And I ended up in intensive care for quite a long time with, you know, 30, 40 broken bones. And it was, and it was suddenly everything we sort of looked forward to had been taken away. And G- Giles and I, uh, for our sins, I'm really joking, after after that happened, we went into the city. We always thought we were going to join the Air Force. And uh, it was in the early 90s. And if you join the Air Force, then it was three or four years of, waiting at a desk till you could fly. So we said, actually, and this is pre my father's death. He said, actually, why don't you go and try and do something semi-constructive with your lives until you are allowed to fly? So we went off and I joined PwC. And uh, in the middle of that, I had this accident. And suddenly, I my whole mindset changed. It was really strange. It was, I felt frustrated being in an office. I felt frustrated being, watching other people doing things around me that I wanted to do. And it became... I never felt that before. I suddenly felt 
my gosh, time is ticking away. So I qualified. I got out a year later. And I, one day I rang up my brother. And I said, Charles, I can't do this anymore. And by this time, I was working for a small boutique corporate finance outfit. And I rang up Charles and said, Charles, I'm, I'm thinking of quitting. I think I might just get involved in this business, restoring historic aircraft that our father had had as a sort of hobby, but it was getting a bit out of control. I said, look, I might just take some time out and do this. And Giles said, that's interesting. And then I got a call back from half an hour later and he said, Nick, I've done it. And I said, done what? And he said, I've quit my job. I thought, oh no, my mum's going to kill me. And he had quit his job. And we both very naively went off and got stuck into this new business, which was was interesting. Well, this, this continues, I guess, the family part of this, because everybody I ever speak to about you will talk about the double act of Nick and Giles, that actually you've got this sort of, you know, brother. I mean, it, it's it's always something that's made me laugh because my, my business partner is actually called Nick Giles. So the idea that Nick and Giles uh, are... Oh, really? <laughs> but, but we are also a double act. And I think... You know, in, in many respects, that that power of partnership, that power of the team. I had a, a similar situation in terms of our original journey, in terms of like it, it took one one to go before the other one would, would, you know, sort of jump ship and start a new business. I mean, in terms of that dynamic with your brother, what do you think that creates in terms of the entrepreneurial team that you are? Oh, uh, you know, it's made a huge difference. I think I'd have been a lot more cautious. I think I'd have treaded a little more gently than I have. Do you think you would have done it? Do you think you would have created the business? Do you think you would have actually taken the plunge? I would have done something, but probably we probably wouldn't have been as bold. I think what's interesting is I can have a coffee with Giles. I can sit in a board meeting and now we have more people around us. Luckily, they're quite a similar mindset. But still, I don't think we would have made the decisions we made earlier on and without just Giles and I both having a similar mindset. And I think that's been very important to us. So sitting around and deciding to remortgage your house for the second time without your wife really knowing and heading off to Switzerland to set up a, a brand and learn and learn the, the ropes behind, you know, luxury watchmaking. It's, you probably would have done it if your brother hadn't had the similar, what, had we had each other on, basically. I think that was quite, quite obvious. But, but you're, you obviously started from a position of getting on. I mean, I, I mean, a lot of siblings could never make it work, uh, you know, by doing something as intense as a, you know, a startup, then a scale up, then a, then a global brand. In terms of how the relationship works, what, how would you characterize yourself as two brothers in terms of how, I guess, that chemistry, that relationship has become so successful? Well, Giles is incredibly able at photocopying, floor sweeping. <laughs> There's a lot of odd jobs around the office he's quite handy at. Now, I think, I think, do you know, funny enough, we're both quite similar. We are, you know, when you're running a business like Bremont, it's actually quite complex. You have your engineering company, you're a manufacturing company, you're a, a retailer, you're a wholesaler, but also you're a, a marketing company. And what you realize, especially when you're when you're growing the business, you have to actually dabble in all areas. It's not, you know, you're, you're doing engineering drawings at one stage and you're literally coming up with a marketing plan on the rest. And you're as strong as the weakest link. And so Giles and I have obviously a general knowledge. I guess I've been more involved in the, if you had to sum us up at the moment, I'm probably more involved with the design and the product side, but we both work together on it. And Giles is probably more on the marketing side, but then we're both needed for, you know, we were anyway, at least nipping around the world on the on the the retailer events side. I think last year we did there's about 150 events, and so or the year before COVID rather. So that's all changed. You know, life has changed quite a lot since then. But I think the key thing is, 
you know, blood, blood is thick in the water, isn't it? And, you know, the trust is implicit. And I think when you're setting up a brand like Bremont, you know, it's DNA, it's pillars, it's what it represents are very, very key and very core. And you want everyone to absorb this around you. And I, mean, I wondered, I mean, is this just blurb or is this passion when you talk about handing down from generation to generation? Is that what comes out of a family business in terms of that kind of that that goal of actually creating timepieces that will will have continuity, stay in families? Is that is that part of what what you're about? Do you think? Well, no, that will have by by default. I mean, what's so beautiful and so special about mechanical watch is you know, they're far out going to live us. You know the you know, they're so un- they're not disposable at all. They're, you know, you're looking at something which you machine, you engineer, and, you know, you've got 86 odd thousand seconds in a day. You're producing something which is, you know, active to plus three or four seconds a day. You, if you look after it, like any beautiful mechanical device, it will last forever. So as long as you get it serviced, whereas, you know, looking at a smartwatch, smartwatch other than digging up the mountainside for the, the battery and you're throwing it away after a year and a half. So there is something very, very special about this. Well, let's talk action and aeronauticals, because, I mean, I suppose that that seems to me to be, you know, key parts of the kind of the Bremont story in terms of the watches, the sort of thing that, you know, you've had Ewan McGregor and Charlie Borman putting them through their paces. But they're also things that you will see in magazines as as sort of like, you know, style icons, thing, pieces that, that, that make, a, make a statement. I mean, I suppose where we need to start this is that even the name has a great story behind it. Let's start there in terms of introducing Bremont the brand and Bremont the timepieces. Yeah, do you know, essentially, when we started, there were probably 700 Swiss brands uh, around the world. So we, we started, there was this incredible history, as I mentioned before, of British watchmaking. It all but died out 100 and something years ago. We had 50% of the world's clocks and watches 100 years ago came from British shores. So you've got the world sets its time by Greenwich. You've got probably 60% of the innovation in any mechanical watch came from this country. And then we had two world wars. And, you know, if you could build a, uh, a movement part for a watch, you could probably build a firing pin for an Enfield rifle. You, and it's all about the war effort. And we, we had depressions. We had other things. And the Swiss were made remarkably independent throughout the whole thing and were and, and took this sort of Henry Ford model to, to watchmaking where it was about producing quality items, but in numbers. And we had a very old mentality in this country whereby we can make beautiful things. It's a bit like shotguns. You know, you make beautiful things, but we only make very few of them. And it was seen as almost semi-vulgar to, to produce a luxury item in numbers. But it can be done. And, and what Bremel's very much about is, is this whole DNA is about bringing this watchmaking back. So you're producing something beautifully engineered, but in numbers. And I think that's... right. But, but 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 I mean, we'll get on to you know what what do the Swiss and Germans think think of uh, companies think of you in in a moment. But but let's let's go back to a farmer's field. Okay, I'll take you there. And this is where it was born, wasn't it? In France. No, it was. My point was, we didn't want to buy a brand. So when Giles and I started, there is this history of British watchmaking, but we didn't want to go and buy you know, this incredible, you know, the Arnolds, the the Mudges, the Tompions, the Dents, they're all incredible watchmakers from the past. The Harrison, he designed the first ever ship's chronometer 300 years ago. So we didn't want to do that. So when we set up Bremont for the first five years, we didn't have a, a watch brand, I didn't have a name and it wasn't important to us because it was all about getting the watch rights. But then it got to a stage when, right, Giles, we've really got to come up with a name for this brand. And we, our surname's English, so having a British watch name 
uh, named after you, uh, you know, hard to trademark and the irony had been lost on many. And actually came down to a trip two years after my accident, my father, my brother got me back in the airplane quite quickly. And we're doing another trip down through France, much to my mother's dismay. And we had a, uh, I'd say, precautionary landing in a in a farmer's field in France where we're... Very- they call for- they make all forced landings, aren't they? Yeah, no, well, they are a little bit. Well, we, it was sort of slightly self-inflicted. We took off with far too little fuel. Not we, That's not true. We took off the right amount of fuel, but we couldn't find where we're going. And we ended up landing in this farmer's field. And if you do that in UK or America, you apologize to the farmer and buy him a bottle of whiskey and take his wife for a flight. But in France, it's very bureaucratic and it's illegal. So you land there and the whole airplane gets impounded. And we knew this at the time and we landed, but we just thought actually it's better to be alive. And we landed, it was pissing with rain, which is sort of indication of why we shouldn't have been flying in the first place. This farmer came out and we thought, oh my gosh, this is going to be hard work. Giles, in the meantime, was hitchhiking to get some fuel with a rather good looking French girl. And I was sort of left confronting this farmer. And I thought this is going to be tricky. And he just said, look, put your, put your airplane in my hangar. Well, it's a barn until the weather clears and come and have a cup of tea. So we did that, pushed it in. And, and we ended up staying with him for two or three nights. And had our father lived for another 30 years, he would have been very much like this guy. You know, this guy was had a workshop. He was tinkering the whole time, used to fly himself. And we stayed in touch until his death. I mean, he's 78 years old at the time. Uh, and what was his name? Antoine Bremont. Antoine Bremont. So this is the... So this is who, who the brand is named after, Antoine Bremont. Yeah. You know, it's made, named after Antoine, but also with a very, you know, when we think of Antoine, we think of our father. So it's sort of, it was a really lovely name encapsulating everything that was important to Giles and I at the time, really, and still is. Well, well let's, let's move on, because I was thinking about this, you know, the last time that the phrase the British are coming was 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 used was was the American Revolution. And of course, you know, you've created this revolution in watches where, you know, you've definitely caught the attention of the Swiss and German aristocrats in the fields, the Rolexes, the Amigas, the many, 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 many others. How do the specialists view you? How do they view Bremont when they when they see this as a you know, a a young company, a British company, one where, you know, the world seems to have moved to Switzerland and Germany when it thinks of 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 watches. How how does Bremel stack up against that kind of competitor set? Which, you know, uh, you know, compared to the big, big boys, we're small still. You know, and if you ever ask the average watch girl on the street, you know, would they know of Bremel? I think they would in the UK. They may in some other countries, but we're not a, you know, we're not a, an Amiga or a Rolex or anything like that. So there's, I don't think we're, they have to worry about us in terms of taking their market share. But at the same time, I think, you know, interestingly enough, we have a, an incredible relationship with the Swiss. And what's been really important is them helping us. We're in an industry which died out, Michael. It, it, 50 years ago was pretty much the time the last Macalca watch in any number was made on British shores. And so our big drive has been trying to bring this back, but you can't just do it overnight. And so when you met, for listeners, because you've mentioned the word Macalca watch a few times, just, just define that for us in terms of what that means to a non-specialist listener. Yeah, no, of course, sorry. No battery, basically. No battery. So these are mechanical watches. Yeah, so you've got, they're the most accurate mechanical devices on the planet. So think about this, you're... Yeah, well, I mentioned earlier, 86,400 seconds in a day. And you've got this mechanical device on your wrist. You're bashing around 
And yet it's capable of telling the time within two or three seconds a day. I think it is just, it's a minor miracle. And that's the exciting thing about it. And it will last forever. Because I was wondering, with the mechanical point, is this why you've been talking? Because, you know, you've been talking a lot about sustainability lately. You know, I, you know, just to quote back to you, the planet just simply cannot carry on sustaining this consumerism in the same way. Do you think that you're part of a tradition that is more respectful of resources, more about things that can last? Is that the angle that you are thinking of when when you talk about this totally you know you're what i just really don't like is this sort of disposable society i don't think it's any i don't think it's wrong at all going off and buying yourself something beautiful something that you really want and that's good for the economy isn't it it's great for everyone the seller the buyer everyone what isn't great is when you buy something off off one of these clothing websites and it's disposed the next day i really try and stop my kids doing that and it's the same with watches. It's the same with cars. You know, Giles and I drive around and, I mean, Giles has had his old car. I mean, it's probably, you know, he's had it since he's 20. Even then it was 20, 30 years old. And, but you can have something nice, but as long as you look after it, it'll last forever. And I think it's the same with a lovely pair of shoes. It's the same with a, you know, a well-made bicycle. It doesn't matter. And that for me is, is luxury. I, I'm going to, I'm going to give you a pass on the environmental footprint of the old car. But what I am going to ask you about. No, but, no, but Michael, that, but, no, but you say that. Yeah. But think about a car, the energy going in to build a new, a new car these days. I agree totally. I mean, talk about a classic car here. You're not, you're not the, the energy needed to build a new Tesla is, is huge as well. And I think it's still great, but it's, you can't discount the fact that if you look after something for, five times as long as you were thought you were. I'm going to be sure to pass on the listener feedback. But I, I, I think point taken is that there is this thing about things things that last. Now, there is also, I, I think, you know, as part of the your story, the Bremont story, there is a real passion piece here. I mean, you've talked about passion being the essential ingredient to the entrepreneurial spirit. I mean, do you, do you think that that kind of, you know, positivity, the belief in the better tomorrow, is that is that what is that what's driven your story? Yeah, because I'd imagine, you know, like like any business, there there will be ups and downs. It's not always, you know, from one one great height to the next. I mean, th- th- is passion is passion the essential part of the project? I think with any successful sort of entrepreneurial startup passion is the main main ingredient by a long stretch the passion gets you through those huge lows you you will experience but also those you know is recharged by those huge highs you'll also have passion is needed for product design it's needed for battling against your competitors it's needed for uh, for so many things of an entrepreneurial sort of startup and it's what drives our business and i think if we employ anyone now you know in the interview the main thing we're looking out for is Will these people have the same passion or at least a percentage of it needed to to work at Bremont? And and I think you talk to anyone at Bremont and they will, will share the same passion for bringing watchmaking back to the UK. What do you think the nemesis of passion is? What what what, what sort of kills it, dampens it? It's a fairly fragile, fragile thing, isn't it, as part of the human character? You know, for me, I don't know about you, Michael, I just want to be around people who... It's the, it's the negativity I don't like. The positivity comes with passion, I think. They're all very closely interrelated. And this whole half-empty, half-full business, if you're with someone, and we all, we're all the same, if you're around someone, whether it's in your free time or at work, and someone is just so sort of, sort of punch drunk with life, injecting that enthusiasm, that, uh, 
that optimism, they're so nice to be around, aren't they? Mm. I suppose it, it, you know, it explains your your tip for life, be half full, they are the best folk to be around. And I suppose people might be listening, thinking, well, I like the sound of that, but but how do I do it? I mean, a lot of athletes will talk about, you know, their central challenges, how do they make their worst moment their best moment? But in terms of how you get the half full attitude, the half full aspect, the half full life, is there, is there a way, is there a learnable lesson there that you would pass on in terms of how you view challenge, how you view life? Yeah, do you know, I we've had a knock. You know, the accident was a big one. And I talked to a very good friend of mine who, this is a number of years ago, and I was trying to explain, you know, he, he was always incredibly positive. And I like to think of myself as a positive guy. So I said, how, you know, what makes you so so positive and so you know, just just lovely to be around. And, you know, his answer to me was, you know, he he, he get, wakes up in the morning and he said on the on the, the distance he walks from getting out of bed to the bathroom, he feel he thinks of five reasons that day is going to be a good one. That's all he does. He walks to the morning, today is going to be a great day because of, you know, I am going to see this person here. I'm going to finish this off. I'm going to make sure I ring this friend of mine. I make good... He, he has these five positive things and it seems to set him up for the day. And it's so nice to think about the positives rather than the negatives, isn't it? Well, this is one of the things I think you could draw from your own life experience is that, you know, you, you experience deep tragedy, but a big part of your story since then has been about keeping on the move, the velocity of change, making things happen. I wonder whether that's an important part of the positivity profile, if you like. I mean, you're just opening a a brand new state-of-the-art facility for the manufacture of, of, of your future watches. I mean, do, do you think that keeping on the move is a part of the formula? Keeping on the move, but also for us less, no, it definitely, you know, keeping that adrenaline, I mean, and, and that momentum going. But even more than that, it's saying no to the naysayers. It's, we have come across so many people over the last 20 years who said it's impossible to do that. It's impossible. And when Giles and I hear that, or any, hopefully anyone in our team, it's like, why is it impossible? Why? And it's very easy to get stuck in these almost channels of, well, to, to put it this way, when, when we talked about making cases, watch cases in the UK for the first time, probably six or seven years ago, you're machining these things to three or four microns. Your human hair is 60 to 80 microns. You're machining to hugely small torrents as are movement parts. Everyone said category, it's impossible. This is why most of them are outsourced to Asia. This is why you know, a few of them happen in, in Switzerland. But you just do it. There's incredible engineering stuff in the UK. And you just look at another way of doing it. And, and, and we've done that. But we've done it with picking the right people with the same can-do mindset. And that's very, very... But, but also, I suppose, can-do mindset, but also your own sense of, you know, a very, very large to-do list in, in life, where I was reading the Henley Standard note, no less. I mean, the first time we've quoted the Henley Standard on the show, but obviously where, where, where you are based, where, where you've got your HQ, but, but you tell them that you'll never retire. You'll never really retire. I mean, is that, I mean, is that, have you changed your mind during the pandemic? No, 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 no. I, do you know, I, it's, it's about waking up and doing something you love, isn't it? It doesn't matter. You know, you might change your work day. You might change the way your, your year works. You might want to travel more. But the day you decide, I've hit 60 or 65, I'm retiring, you see so many people go downhill, don't you? And, uh, and it's working that grey matter. It's, you know, work can be fun. I love work. I love going in. I love talking. I'm meeting, you meet so many wonderful people. Why on earth would you want to 
stop that, really. Has has the pandemic made that emotion more or less intense to keep on going? That's a very interesting point. I don't think it's changed it. I think, obviously, it's been a incredibly hard 18 months. If you look at you know, us as a business, we sell, what do we sell? We probably sell 75% of our 60, 75% through, through the high street, all the high street shut. Now, you do make up some of that online and through other ways, but it's, uh, it's been very, very tough. So you kind of go into battle mode, don't you? And because of that, that I think over the last you know, 12 months, you know, the thought of retirement is you couldn't be in, you know, further from our minds. And there's so much we want to do. And there's, we're having to be so incredibly innovative in, in taking the business forward and making sure that this big facility we've made is being used to its potential. You know, it's all designed for tours where there aren't a huge number of Chinese tourists coming over right now. So we're, we're having to reevaluate and use it in different ways. But I suppose this brings us on to the final question, which is, you know, I suppose really allied to the fact that I think this interview has been all about time and, and how you use it. Your quote for life in the lockdown list is, you only live once, but once is enough if done with the right gusto. A final thought on that quote, explain why you gave it to us and what it means to you. I, my dad always talked about three score years and 10. And sadly, is 20 years below that. But his view in life was once you get to, I know it's changed. This was a few years ago, and I think you could probably add on 10 years to that now. But his, his view was you get to 70 years old, you should be at that point happy with the life you've led and not really have a huge number of regrets. And that's where I want to be. I want to be 70 years old saying to myself, Listen, okay, I would clearly love to live as long as I possibly can, see my grandchildren. That's but for my life, for the way I've brought up my children, for the way I've done business, for the way I've, you know, may have seen the world, whatever your ambitions are in life, I want to have got to that point and been, you know, content. And I'm still not there yet by a long stretch. There's still I've got a huge bucket list of things I need to do and I want to do. But uh, hopefully I'll get there before these three stories. I have no doubt, Nick, this is a story with many, many more chapters to tell. Nick English, thank you very much for joining me on Changemakers. Michael, thank you very much indeed. Changemakers is brought to you by the campaign's firm Seven Hills and presented by me, Michael Heyman. Pure Being is the name of our soundtrack and it's written and performed by the brilliant BT Wolf. To find out more, head over to changemakers.works and if you like what you hear, why not give us a rating? Yeah.